because oftentimes I feel women battling their biology over 10 pounds. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful or judgmental way. I completely have that lived experience too, but it, but it really is almost ruining women's lives because it's so important. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome back to the Seasoned RD. You know, I had someone say they wanted to do a social media post of a week in the life of Beth. And as I was listening through this episode with Val Schonberg, registered dietitian, I was reminded of why I started this podcast in the first place. It's sort of a glimpse into where I spend my energy, who I spend my resources with, how do I find the people and the settings, and how do you find the people and the settings that will fill you up. A listener commented, Sarah commented about Carolyn Costin's time on the show. This episode, I'm such a fan girl. I've listened to a number of her talks and used the workbook also. Really appreciated Abby's questions. I'm literally swooning here. <laughs> Sounds over the top and excited for sure. And so I had to look up swooning, remembered it meaning something different, but really to be emotionally affected by someone or something that one admires to become ecstatic. So thank you, Sarah, for your comment and other listener comments. Please feel free to rate, share, and review this podcast with others. In this podcast, we bring medical, nutrition, and therapy professionals who share their passions to pique your interest in available modalities in the field of eating disorders. This show is intended to inform and educate and not a substitute for the professional training and supervision required to specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, nor is it a substitute for medical, nutrition, or psychological advice from a professional or a specialist. Val is a registered dietitian nutritionist, board certified as a specialist in sports dietetics and certified menopause practitioner with the North American Menopause Society. She's also fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and she has a practice in Atlanta. We covered a lot of ground in this episode revolving around Val's work for people in midlife, especially women, connecting hormones, neurobiology, eating disorders, weight, and body image. Val shares some of her special seasonings, so check out the show notes, and you can connect with her. If you're listening in real time, she refers to something in August, and we do small group recordings and release them as we're able, so although August date has passed, there is a midlife body image group that begins October 5th. There's also something right around the corner, September 13th or 14th, so the information is in the show notes. Welcome, Val Schomburg. We're really happy to have you on the Seasoned RD today. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me to come. 
Yes. Cannot wait to chat with you, learn from you, but we'll just ease you into things with a few icebreakers. So my first one for you is mountains or beach? Oh, beach. For sure. Beach for sure. Okay. That was an easy one. Yeah. Just got back from the beach. (laughs) Where were you? We were in Delray, Florida. It was a last minute. My husband's like, all right, we need to, we need to get out of here. And we live in Georgia. So it's pretty easy to head down to, you know, the Florida area. Oh, so nice. Okay. Second one is breakfast or dinner. Oh, breakfast for dinner. (laughs) I love, I love breakfast food. I think I'm the best at preparing breakfast food. It doesn't even ever make sense to me to go out to a breakfast restaurant and pay the amount of money for brunches. I'm like, I think there, I love cooking breakfast, but I love dinner. I think dinner is always more of like a calm wrap up for the day, you know, really peaceful time. So love breakfast food at dinner. Sounds great. And audiobook or paper book? Oh, paper book. Yep. With a highlighter. And if I can have little tabs to like mark. Yeah, I'm great. I cannot even, it's too much. I, my brain just can't focus. And so I need to highlight. I often will take notes. I'm really weird. And I, but the part of that is I don't read a lot of fiction. I, I kind of what, and one of those who wants to read the first chapter and the last chapter and be done with it. And I'm going to move on to like probably a PubMed research article. I mean, this is what I, I think well, before we hit record, I, we were chatting and I thought, I bet that she goes to the journals. <laughs> All right. Well, you're a registered dietitian. Yes. Certified sports dietitian too. Yep. Yep. Board okay. certified as a specialist in sports dietetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have a, I don't know if it's a certification, but in menopause. Yeah. So it's through the North American Menopause Society and they have a certification for really any licensed clinical professional. And it was just something that around 2013, 2014, when I was getting into this space, as I was stepping away from eating disorder treatment, but had already worked a lot with women in their midlife years in eating disorders. I had this like fascination with menopause and was trying to do some of my own research to understand really ultimately, how do I put point people in the right direction to whether it's a reference or a book or a resource. And I was so frustrated with what was out there. So as I did more of my digging, I was like, well, I'm already doing all this work up. I might as well, you know, take the test. It's basically, you know, kind of some workups that you do and, you know, collect your CEUs and, and take a test. So I really didn't think anything of it at the time, but more of a push to get me to, to keep learning in the space. And I'm really glad that I did because frankly, the test feels like it's really designed for gynecologists, right? Like I I left there thinking, what the heck did I do that for? (laughs) I was surprised I passed. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was like the hardest thing. Cause it's really very medical oriented, but I think even in nutrition, we do have to understand and respect the whole female physiology to be able to understand and interpret like what should be our nutrition interventions, you know, in terms of health outcomes, because we hold all that information, right? Like what is MNT for these like diseases of aging? And at the same time, what are some of the sensitivities of midlife women that we really need to understand with, you know, just as it relates to hormone changes and, and menopause? Because 
Otherwise, you will get very lost in the noise and chatter if you're just using Google University for your source of information. Yes. And MNT is medical nutrition therapy for any of you who are therapists or medical providers and you don't not familiar with that acronym. Bring us back to your RD exam many years ago. Was it, I'm, I'm assuming many years ago, I don't mm-hmm. know. Was it number two pencil or keyboard? It was keyboard at the time. I, t- I took my exam in 2006 or 2007. I started my master's. So I, my undergrad right after school, I worked at IBM for five years as a marketing rep. That's a whole long story and I won't waste our time on that. But then I eventually went back to school, which, you know, just really realizing like I really did love medicine and science and then started working on my master's in nutrition in 1992, I believe it was. And then I had my daughter in 94 and I was doing like the coordinated program at the time, but I really just fell in love with wanting to be a mom. So I chose to stay home for the kind of took a break from that. And then I came back after 10 years to, you know, you know, wrap up my master's in nutrition. And then I started working for the Emily program in the twin cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul area in eating disorder treatment. So you know, it was a scary decision. It was the wisest decision I was, you know, privileged to be able to make. I felt like it was such a privilege that I could stay home and be with my daughter. I, I just think it's, if you can, it's one of the most important things you can do. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Like you said, if you can, and it is a privilege and, and mm-hmm. I'm glad that you had that time to do that. So that's why you took the C, the RD test later yeah. and it was mm-hmm. keyboard. Any stories from that day that you can remember? Is the worst exam ever. <laughs> well, actually, to be honest, I mean, it was really hard. I thought, I, I don't know. I always think exams are hard. Maybe that's just, you know, I'm a perfectionist. And so I always think I fail miserably. And I'm always surprised if I can pass. But to be honest, I think the CSSD, the board certification for sports dietetics, that first exam, you know, because I've had to recertify. But when I took that the first time, I know another dietitian was taking it at the same time I was. And we were just like, oh my gosh, we completely failed that. So yeah, those exams, and you know, you can talk to a physical therapist or anybody like these exams are rigorous and they're Mm -hmm. really challenging. So yes, the RD exam feels like it was a gazillion years ago, but it it was hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so you kind of answered part of the, well, part of the question actually of how did you get into the field of eating disorders? And then definitely we want to go into, you've used the word midlife a few times. So we want to move into what you're doing now with midlife and women. Yeah. So, you know, you know, as a registered dietitian, And then as a sports dietitian, so I do work with individuals of all ages. I work a lot in the sports nutrition space and I work with a lot of teenagers and adolescents. And then the midlife and menopause part seem to be off on its own somewhat. However, it is a bit like a Venn diagram in how they overlap, right? Because once you understand the impact of eating disorders in terms of the neurobiology of that, some of the impact of restrictive eating or different types of behaviors with eating and how that affects hormones. Same thing kind of 
happens when we're dealing with intense activity or, you know, physical activity and the impact on hormones. And then you look at that in terms of the space of menopause, which really is, you know, physiologically this, this change that women experience symptoms that women experience as their hormones are fluctuating and changing into those postmenopausal years. So it's kind of worked out really interestingly in terms of when I learn in one space, it really is able to be applied to another space. And I often see where these ivory towers, because they really are three different ivory towers, are not talking to each other, <laughs> right? So there's often just a real interesting you know, experience, but it's, it's a population that I think is vulnerable to disordered eating and eating disorders. So that's another aspect of why I continue to really specialize in working with that space because I want, I want women and I want people of all ages to experience peace and freedom in their relationship with food and their body. And so that's kind of where it comes together. We talk a lot about what we didn't learn in school or in our internship and menopause is one of them. We haven't talked about before, but I mean, I think maybe I had like a 10 minute lesson on menopause. So it's just such an untapped territory. What kinds of things do you, are you doing in that area? Yeah. Well, I think it is still an untapped area. I mean, it makes sense that it hasn't really shown up in, you know, curriculum in school, even from a textbook physiology standpoint, because I think it's still a relatively new science. I mean, up until like 2002 and 2004, women were like, if you look at the history of how women were like menopause was a bad thing, right? Like there was, there's a lot of history about women and their menstrual cycle. And then fast forward to, you know, probably like our mom's you know, they were just given hormone therapy or hormone replacement therapy. It's like, okay, you're kind of a crazy person. We're going to give you this hormone replacement therapy. This is just what you do. And that's really how it was treated. Then the Women's Health Initiative, it was a study that came out initially in 2002. And the results in 2004 basically scared people to death, doctors, clinicians, and women, that hormone therapy was basically going to cause all these problems with breast cancer and cardiovascular concerns. And so women stopped taking hormone therapy and doctors stopped prescribing it. Well, it opened up this, you know, space to a lot of noise and chatter. This is when Suzanne Summers came out with her, like, you know, here's how to, to live naturally and bioidentical hormones kind of came on the scene, a lot of supplements. Well, then from the science place, it was like, let's switch, you know, because it used to be like an empty nester syndrome kind of physiology or, you know, study to what is the, the neurobiology of changing hormones. So now we are looking more at like, well, what is beyond, what is beneath hot flashes and night sweats? and sleep disturbances and the irritability or the onset of depression in the midlife years, you know, is it just that your kids left? Not necessarily. Like there really is an impact of fluctuating hormones on brain chemistry in many different ways. And even just the impact on the hypothalamus, which is kind of that region of the brain that controls the sleep wake cycle and temperature regulation and hunger and cravings. And then that kind of gets butted up against aging, it happens for both men and women in their fourth decade in life and on, you know, the loss of lean tissue, 
And that, and we just don't build muscle the same, like muscle protein synthesis doesn't happen very well. Our aerobic capacity changes, bone density starts to change. So there's all of these kinds of areas where I think labs around the world, researchers are taking a look at it more from that physiological and brain chemistry standpoint. And then that starts to inform our care for women a little bit better. So back to the women's health initiative study, you know, even like 10 years later, researchers came back and said, you know, as we see this with so many food science studies, it's like, oh, okay, they interpreted that literature not correctly. And actually there is a window of opportunity where hormone therapy can be actually very important for younger postmenopausal women in terms of protecting their bones and protecting their, you know, cardiovascular system. But, you know, if a woman is 65 and 10 years postmenopause, maybe that's a time when it's really not appropriate to be prescribing hormone therapy for hot flashes or some type of symptomology. I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it really is recognized recognizing that it's, it's so complex. And I, I look at it as a relatively new science. Wow. So to Abby, do you even know who Suzanne Summers is? <laughs> when Al said Suzanne Summers? I, I do not. <laughs> it was a great three's company. Well, that's what I remember her in. It was a sitcom on TV. And so actress. So that meant that she had a big following. Oh my gosh. I just love it, Beth, that you even picked up on that. Like, I'm just like, boo! Doesn't everybody <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I don't know. Did you watch, I'm going to shamefully say that, yes, I did watch that back in the day. Oh yeah. It oh, helped yeah. form some of my opinions, but that's, I'm like, that's, I said, I'm embarrassed about that. But anyways, what does menopause have to do with eating disorders and body? Well, I think there's a number of pieces to that. It's such a great question. One of the ways that I like to ex- explain it to, to women and clinicians, I think is very, I even have like a picture that illustrates this. But if you really think about puberty as that time where it's these turbulent years leading into menarche, which is the first menstrual cycle. And so it's almost like a jet taking off, coming up to cruising altitude. And then we have our reproductive years where we have this kind of, you know, if you're not on, you know, oral contraceptives or using birth control, there's this natural fluctuation in our hormones that really regulate the reproductive system and those, those reproductive years. And then perimenopause, which literally means around menopause, is if you can imagine, it's the turbulent time of the jet coming down to ground. And that is this wildly fluctuating hormones of estrogen and progesterone. These are, you know, reproductive hormones that are produced by the ovaries. And as women age, you know, we're born with a finite number of eggs. They're called oocytes contained in follicles in our ovaries. And as you go through those reproductive years at that cruising altitude, those follicles are depleted. And then the perimenopausal years, which are really turbulent, a lot of the symptoms are reflective of that, that population of eggs or follicles. And so when they're at a point where they're depleted, the ovaries don't need to be making estrogen and progesterone, right? Like, so the ovaries are kind of shutting down. And then for a few years after that final menstrual period, there's still a little bit of some fluctuating before the the hormones stabilize out. You know, as that happens, just like we see for some of our, 
you know, adolescence going through puberty, there's a sense of your body is changing. Even just your experience in your body feel can feel uncomfortable. Who you are, some identity issues. Well, I do believe that perimenopause and midlife mirrors that. And it happens at a time in life when the kids are leaving the house and you're dealing with aging parents and maybe a loss of your marriage or you're moving or downsizing. So there's all these things happening in your body that can feel very uncomfortable and out of control and confusing. And what's happening in your environment and in your world around you can be very confusing too. And it, you know, we're kind of butted up against aging. And then we get this culture that is an anti-aging culture that we can battle aging, that we don't need to age, that we can still look like we're in our twenties and thirties. So I think for women that can really contribute to some disordered eating and eating disorders, which is in many ways is very similar to what we see in those adolescent years. And as I mentioned earlier, some of that really is we're definitely not crazy. Like some of that is actually physiologically happening in terms of your experience with those fluctuating hormones. And certainly if you've ever, well, Abby, I'm guessing you haven't had night sweats, but go through night sweats in your life. And it's it's crazy. It's like, wow, this is, this is fascinating. And and life is kind of disrupted. Mm -hmm. And even in, and we've talked to you and I have talked a little bit about this before is night sweats in refeeding night sweats in menopause. And so they're there, they can be different kinds. Well, I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert, so I'm not going to try to guess any of that, but that was a really great kind of connection between eating disorders. And part of it too, I've heard you say a few times is body image, body image, body image. And that's how you and I met, I think was in a small group that another dietitian had pulled together. I think by the end of it, we called it Mary Menopausers or whatever, yep. but it was body <laughs> image and, and eating disorder clinicians who are also in that phase of their life and what they're personally feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I think I loved that group that when we came together, because it really speaks to that nutritionists and dietitians, we're not, or psychologists or anyone, when you go through midlife and menopause, we're not like superhuman. We're still experiencing the same thing. And to have your life feel like you're eating the same way and you're moving your body the same way. And there's not like a clear connection of, Oh, this is why I feel this way. This is why I don't feel well is because of this, you know, injury or this incident. Like it doesn't make sense. It like rationally doesn't make sense that you have this symptoms and we never really get that like the puberty conversation. No one sits down with you five years ago you know, before this all starts and says, so here's what you can expect. Here's what's going to happen. And you know, what's really scary about this too, is that I'm seeing so many women, more women, even in their thirties worried about menopause. So it's on their radar that something bad, it's like quote unquote bad, this bad thing's going to happen. And what can I do now to make sure that I don't gain weight or that this bad thing menopause happens. And I I think we've created a really big problem because menopause is just a natural event in a woman's life 
that is portrayed in our culture as something that's bad. It doesn't need to be pathologized. You know, if you talk to postmenopausal women, many postmenopausal women will even say it wasn't that bad. And so I often think of this like pregnancy, right? Like if you happen to go through a pregnancy and even if you haven't been pregnant or choose not to have a pregnancy, you probably have heard pregnant women talk about being pregnant or labor and delivery. And every woman's story is different. Every woman's experience is different, whether they took medications, whether it was just a breeze and not a big deal, or, you know, they gave birth at home with a, you know, in the bathtub and someone else had like tons of medications. And so everybody's experience is different. And I think menopause is a similar thing. I think some people really have their lives disrupted by some of these fluctuating hormones, but the reality is many women you know, are very resilient. They don't think hot flashes are that big of a deal. It's just kind of laugh it off and carry a fan around and get over it. And others, it is very distressing and disruptive. Same with the body changes. I think we experience that as dietitians when we really talked about this is okay. Well, I guess that group of clothing needs to go out the door and we need to find something that's going to fit this body that is shaped differently. And what does that feel like? What is that experience like? How do you get supported? How do you change how you view yourself? And I think even when you look at the neurobiology of body image, just our brain mapping of our lived experience. So I often see, you know, certainly in a health at every size culture where we really want to be respectful of bodies of every size, oftentimes for women who just have, quote unquote, never had to worry about their weight. Like, it's just, well, you know, I was just always the size. I never worried about it. And then when their body shifts and changes, it's almost more distressing than someone who's sadly, very sadly, has had to battle like some of weight stigma and bodies not being the right size in today's culture. And so I, I think from a body image standpoint for midlife women, it's very complex and probably not even tapped into the way we need to in terms of research and, you know, just the psychological ramifications of that, because I do think the environment, the culture that we live in is kind of problematic. This episode is brought to you by Beth Harrell Supervision. I have two group sessions a year, one from January to June, the second session from July to December. Those are full right now, but individual supervision can happen at any time, whether you are a medical provider, therapist, or dietitian. Then coming into the group after that is so powerful, and Val speaks to that in this episode as well. If you're seeking certification as a an eating disorder specialist, I can definitely help you through the details of all of the requirements. Those who sign up for my supervision freebies are among the first to know when my groups will open up for the January through June cohort. The link is in the show notes. The freebies are monthly live short courses with different experts on a variety of topics that come up in supervision, like growth charts, RFID, emotional care of the clinician, and more. I hope to see you there. And going back to what you said about, okay, maybe it's time to set these clothes aside and get something that's going to fit now, that seems to be like a, a sticky spot. And so when I have some patients who are going through menopause and similar things, and they would come to me and say, so like, what do I need to do now? How do I need to change what I'm eating? What kind of exercise should I be doing? Because I have to stay in these clothes. 
I have mm-hmm. to be in this body. What would your response be to that? You know, I, 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 I really approach this from a place of compassion, like just first and foremost, like just honoring that that's their, that's where they're at. Like that, that seems really important to them that they hang on to being in those clothes. And so instead of kind of dismissing it, like, well, you're just going to need to get over that and go buy new clothes. I mean, I would, I just don't think that's even realistic. I think it, it's a process of thinking about that. Like, well, what do you think you would need to change? Like, what is it about your lifestyle, your relationship with food and eating or your what's going on with activity? Because the reality is that some of that has shifted and changed. And especially we all know coming out of COVID, a lot of lifestyles, even healthy habits have shifted one way or the other. So we can first and foremost come back to, okay, that seems really important to you. What is really important about being able to stay in those clothes? Let's talk about that. You know, it might be, well, I can't afford to go buy new clothes. I don't want to buy new clothes. I really cherish the memories I have in these clothes. So really holding that space. And then at the same time, the person might realize like, I don't work out the way I used to. I'm so tired. Like I'm up three hours every single night, you know, I can't get up early to do the regular workout I used to do. So now it's kind of like, well, your, your activity has shifted and changed it. And then maybe you're ordering out more, you're eating out more, or you're drinking more alcohol. So we can kind of look at, well, what are the behavioral things that we can look at through the lens of self-care? Like, okay, so maybe these are some things you're, you're not feeling as good about your behaviors. Let's focus on that and we'll see what happens with your weight. And in the meantime, you still might want to go shop for a new outfit or go see what that would be like to go get something new. Because I think some of it, I mean, from even personal experience, it's like, do I really want to wear the stuff I've been wearing 10 years ago? Like maybe it is time. <laughs> shifted our trends and, and don't wear those same jeans that I did when I was, you know, 40, but I think it's very individualized and it comes from a place of compassion, but ultimately coming back to, well, what can we control? Mm -hmm. So we can control, you know, what we are doing with food and eating. And, and you know what, some people might not want to give up that glass of wine every night. And if it works out from the health standpoint, then and that's fine. So it's it's a it's kind of a benefit risk assessment of do you really want to change your life so much just so you can lose 10 pounds? Because oftentimes I feel women battling their biology over 10 pounds. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful or judgmental mm-hmm. way. I completely have that lived experience too. But it but it really is almost ruining women's lives because mm-hmm. it's so important. So important. And I, I, that was a great question, Abby. I really appreciated mm-hmm. that. I was also thinking about that 30 year old who's already worrying about menopause and how to, and the fear of what to do, like, what can I do now to offset what's going to be happening? You're, that person is, is just bathing their body in cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and it's not helping them with their energy level or other, it's just wearing them out. Yeah. And, you know, and it alongside this and some of the kind of reading totally separate issue, but really I, I've come to a recognizing, recognizing that I do think today's midlife woman really faces different challenges than our moms or our grandmothers potentially did. 
you know, I'm thinking of a picture I have of my daughter where she is in a, you know, a doctor's jacket with a little doc. She's a little tiny, like five-year-old. And she's got, you know, the doctor's jacket with the case that doctors carry, you know, (laughs) and the stethoscope. And so as, you know, as little girls, I think we experienced this too, that we were told that you get to be whatever you want and you can have it all. And it's not just play with dolls and you're going to get married and have kids. It was, we could be anything, we could do anything. And, and, you know, when you come into your fifties and all your kids are gone, like we were talking about before we all started, I have four kids living all over the country. You know, I could have only imagined this day when I, when my kids were all teenagers running around to all their games and activities. And there is a bit of like, what, what now? Like, what, am I just gonna like, you know, what are we doing? Like it, it's really an, a weird thing. It's, it's a place of freedom, but it's also, do I need to be more? And I think that kind of speaks to, you know, when you are a working professional, you know, just that balance of motherhood or being a woman in today's world and wanting to, to work, but we, we are faced with the reality of aging for, you know, head on. So how do you help professionals learn what they need to do to help their clients, their patients? Well, I, the biggest thing is just really getting questions from wherever that professional is, you know, just like Abby's question, like, what would you say to this person? I think sometimes professionals have their own questions. I think that's probably more of the the professionals that I even see. I see it two different ways. There's either a midlife professional who's like, I'm trying to figure this out for myself. So it's really hard for me to help someone else when I'm struggling with my own body image. How can I really help someone else? So I think there's some kind of questions of, you know, what are good resources, referrals, that kind of thing, and give me better information so I can be more grounded. And then I also think that there's younger professionals who are like, well, I don't understand that at all. So I certainly wouldn't be able to help an older female because I haven't gone through that. And I don't think that's true either. I've never gone through cancer, but I've watched it. I've never, I mean, I've gone through a divorce, but I'm not going to counsel someone on how to go through a divorce. Right. So I think it, again, as, especially as dietitians, we can certainly use medical nutrition therapy to address what really, really matters for aging women, which are the main four diseases of aging. I mean, heart disease is still the leading cause of mortality in women after 50. So we really do need to be well-educated on understanding what are important interventions and weight loss is not one of them. So weight loss is not going to fix any of this. And that is something we are probably just emerging at how we can do a better job of that because it is still a very weight centric viewpoint in the healthcare system as most of us would know. So I think as dietitians, as you're proficient and working with hopefully eating disorders and disordered eating and health at every size, you can, you can apply those principles of, okay, you've gained that 20 pounds. That's super uncomfortable and distressing, but that actually doesn't mean that you're going to die of heart disease. And, and that I think is, is really some work we got to do a better job of. This is what I love about listening to you and your 
kind of nutrition nerd stuff where you are just filling your brain cells with all the journal articles and the readings and evidence that if I were sitting in your office, I would be like, oh, she's got me. She's got this. No matter what I say. So you do have journal professional group coming up. Yeah. Yeah. I've had so many people, dietitians, especially, but also even therapists. I'm going to start the group with just nutrition professionals to begin with, but I've had a lot of professionals say, can, you know, can, can I do an individual consultation with you? I think groups are great. I think we learn better in groups. So I want it. And I do consult. I participate in consultation all the time. It's just the only way I can get better at what I do is is collaboration. I work in a multidisciplinary team with a group here at Emory Sports Medicine, as well as groups, you know, I've done baths group and, and many others. So I wanted to have the consultation piece, but I also wanted it to be an informative piece. And I love because I'm so fond of PubMed journals. And I think there's so many rich resources that that's another thing when clinicians will often say, oh my gosh, like, where do you find all this stuff? So I'm planning to do this group such that we will have some kind of research or, you know, relevant information regarded to some of these hot topics and big questions that come up as we work with this population. And then we can come together and kind of talk about that. Like, what did you learn? What did you learn? What are your questions? Because I constantly have questions coming up and I want to hear everybody's questions and talk it out because we're, I think we're really smart clinicians and we can figure this out together and then do the consultation piece. So that group is starting in mid-August and we'll go for six sessions And then, yeah, I'll I'll stop there. But yeah, I do have some other groups too. Thank you for sharing all of that. See, part of this podcast is really about people who we just, you're doing so many great things. How do we connect, you know, the professionals who are learning to you? And so that's, that's one reason that we wanted to have you on here. So. You, I mean, the misinformation online and preying on these more vulnerable communities is spitting things like, well, you can no longer eat this because you have gone through menopause and you have to eat like this. And this is what's going to keep you quote unquote healthy or in this body that you really want. So with the, you know, knowledge and the science, do you really need to be changing all of these things in your diet? Well, there is no evidence that you need to change anything in your diet. One of the things that I do is I really always try to approach some of these diet interventions from a place of curiosity and questions and as much of an unbiased as I possibly can, right? We all have some implicit bias. So keto is a really great example that I see thrown at midlife women all the time. And, or, or, okay, it'll be modified keto. And so a little bit of carbohydrate, right? And I'm like, okay, so if that were true, which please send me the research article that says that that's actually going to make a difference. I want to see that first and that it's not just, you know, it's a lot of these are just made up ideas, or maybe it is following a set of rules and it creates some kind of caloric deficit and someone loses weight and they feel really great. And they're working out at the same time and they've added that back in and they feel great. And it's like, oh, it's because I cut out carbohydrates. Well, no, it's because you changed your eating behaviors and you addressed your activity 
So I see insulin resistance thrown out a lot that almost everybody's getting insulin resistance. I'm like, where's the research on that too? Like, show me that. And then if it is an individual, like go do the blood work, like get it tested out. Like, is that really happening? So I just feel like some of this is catastrophized and overstated, but keto is like just, and low carbohydrate is a great example of where that doesn't make sense because carbohydrates are plant foods. And we have really good data to support that the higher intake of plant foods, and I'm not trying to make more superiority or that they're better or healthier, but just to the argument of if we're going to cut out whole grains and dairy foods and, you know, good sources of fruit and these, you know, let's call it, you know, the more nutrient dense or whatever type of carbohydrates. If you're, you're saying like, we need to cut those out, well, where are we going to get fiber, which is super important in preventing colon cancer? Where are we going to get calcium, which is a huge issue. I deal a lot with osteoporosis and musculoskeletal issues for midlife and all ages. So it doesn't make sense. It's kind of like stealing from Paul to pay Peter. So if you do that, and for some reason that helps you lose weight and you feel better, okay, that's great. On the flip side, you're probably going to have some problems with another biological system. Not to mention even just the role of fiber in terms of heart health and just even joy and satisfaction in life. And we know that anytime time you follow a diet intervention. So let's say it's intermittent fasting or whatever, you know, comes out in the next five years. Every time we focus on diet rules and a diet intervention, it increases stress and anxiety. I mean, we're already stressed and anxious and have high cortisol levels and aren't sleeping and are worried about our parents are worried about our kids. So I just think it's a really harmful intervention to be recommending diet interventions like that. I clearly feel very strongly about that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, it was an excellent answer. And again, I think even though we're talking about menopause, this can be information for all groups. We all hear this crazy misinformation out there. And seriously, the insulin levels, like people are out here buying glucose monitors right now to like, just see what's going on. (laughs) out here, like in the real world, that's what they're doing left, right, and center. I know. I know. I actually had a client say something about, she she had observed someone in a smaller body and had said, we were talking about her fear about getting diabetes. And she had said, well, everybody kind of, it was along that context. And, And I'm like, well, who is everybody? Like, where are you getting this? Well, you know, this person who she saw had a monitor on her arm. And I'm like, oh, well, (laughs) that doesn't mean that person has diabetes. And I've been asked about that in female athlete groups and with very, you know, active individuals. And so I think that's really unfortunate too, that they're taking these resources that I work with people who need access to diabetes monitoring. It, it, you know, it just kind of makes us stop and wonder, you know, what, what is really going on here? Yeah. It's helpful to have this information and the information on your website and all of the groups that you offer, because like you said, there's, there's just so much newness in this area. And 
I mean, before talking to you, I wouldn't have really known where to go to check out what's going on in the menopause world. So it was really lovely to have you on. But before we let you go, I do have a wrap up question. So if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Oh my gosh. Wow. That is a great question. Cause I was really green <laughs> when I started working, I jumped into residential treatment. What do I wish I would have known? Probably a little bit more about body image work. We approached it pretty prescriptively. And I think I, I, I am one who big fan of intuitive eating. I think there's a place for intuitive eating, but I also think there's a place for prescriptive eating for individuals with eating disorders. So I, I think the biggest thing was just understanding how do we talk about body image? Because no matter what our nutrition intervention would be, it just felt like we always butted up against body image. And, you know, I've, I've been working in the space for, I guess, over 15 years. And I still feel like there's still so much to understand of how we approach body image in a appropriate, helpful way for our clients of all ages. Body image is a big one. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much for that too, because I think maybe before we hit record, but some of your resources around that were your experiences at the residential program that you worked at, but also Marcy Evans and Fiona Sutherland's. Yes. Yeah. Big shout out to their group. I think they still have that body image workshop. I highly recommend that. Abby's in the middle of it now. So yeah. Yeah. Because I had even done you know, body image work when I worked at the Emily program and had done a fair amount of research, have like a whole library of books, you know, a lot of them, you know, copyright 1985 kind of books. And so when I did Marcy Evans and Fiona Sutherland's group, I found like they did such a phenomenal job of updating the research and helping dietitians understand our role in working with body image. So because like I was telling you, you know, I had a lot of doubt of, you know, is this my lane? Is this really something I can do, should do? How do I approach that? And I did start a midlife body image group and found that, wow, even then body positive, body positivity workbook by Nicole Barkalo Wood. Am I saying that right? That's also a really great reference and highly recommend that workbook. It's just recognizing I think what midlife women experience as they're going through this time in life, the experience of body image is probably even a little bit more unique. And there's probably not even good research to support or help us inform our care. So we we have to kind of pull from all these different places. Thank you for sharing those resources because that workbook I hadn't heard of and we'll put some of those things in the show notes because that's what this is about. It's like, what's what's Val's recipe? What kind of ingredients have you acquired over and, and techniques that you have acquired over the years that then can be passed on to others who are just starting or who are kind of looking at different modalities? And it is okay for dietitians to talk about body image. And that's one thing on scope that can, that can get us a little caught up, it's going to come up in our, in our offices, even in our just discovery calls of like, you know, Hey, I need to lose weight or I'm, I'm 30 and I'm, I'm worried about menopause and I need to 
I need to stay in front of all of this, whatever it may be. Yeah. One thing I would just even kind of shout out, just noticing this, you know, how you go along and I think many of us recognize like, okay, the scale is not useful. Let's not focus on weights and weighing. But what I've seen happen in some areas is where, okay, well, we're not going to recommend that you get on a scale, but go do a body composition test instead. And I don't agree that that is a healthful way or a weight neutral way to address anyone even athletes, but especially midlife women, because I don't believe we really fully understand why women need to maybe store more fat. And so if we're going to start drawing attention to that, there's something bad about your body fat increasing and you're still healthy and have healthy behaviors and you don't have any, you know, other concerns. I, I, I'm worried a little bit that I'm seeing this come up in a couple of places and it's like, Oh no, 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 no. Yeah, (laughs) this is just yet another thing. We don't need to measure anything. To focus in on. And, you know, even I was thinking, and I know we need to wrap up with movies and when they have people that flash back to times in their life, as they age that person, it's it shows men and women's body changing as Mm -hmm. it normally, normally would. So to try to prevent that is it's really not sustainable. It's just, it's just part of nature. Yeah. So thank you for joining us today, Val. Thanks again for having me. This was a fun conversation. I love the questions. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.